This is what Paul taught them already. Uh, sorry, this is Genesis. This is not what Paul taught them. This is right back at Genesis. We have a vertical relationship with our Creator, Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, there's someone greater than us. It's our Creator. Uh, he is greater than us. We have a horizontal relationship with other, with one another, with the creature, with the creature, equal and different, Adam and Eve, equal in dignity, uh, but different. Adam wasn't like Eve, and Eve wasn't like Adam in every way. Um, and then this environmental relationship, this place from which uh, we live and uh, breathe and have our being, and uh, we put into this place to caretake. We, we are a good influence on the place that we live. And God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Um, and so that's, that's the whole of Genesis 1 and 2 summed up. This is what we have on a graph. I think it looks like this. Uh, we're in the garden. We're, we have a partner. Adam has Eve. Uh, he has a relationship with God, and he's called to be fruitful and multiply uh, they are called to be fruitful and multiply together. Interesting that right from the beginning, the way uh, forward, in a sense, was obedience to God, but in right relationship with others. Uh, in, in a way, it's the way and, and Jesus kind of says that when he sums up, or uh, when he sums up the law, he says, "Love God and love your neighbor as yourself." If we love God but we don't love others, there's there's no way forward. If we love others but we don't love God. There's also no way forward. It's, it's obedience to God, loving God, loving others um, is our way forward. But sin comes in. And sorry that we're rushing through this. Uh, sin comes in and destroys, or we bring sin in, and we destroy our vertical relationship with God. We play God, and we're prideful, and we think that we can put God in His place. We think we can make God serve us. That's what Adam and Eve did. Satan comes to them and says, did God really say? In other words, can you trust God? And he says to them, and they, they say, yeah, God did really say. But then he, he gets them with this. Yeah, God's really holding back on you. You can be like God. And that suddenly gets the imagination. Whoa, we can be equals with the creator. We can, you know, so they don't dismiss God. They don't, don't become atheists in the garden, but they become, in a sense, Gnostic. God can serve us. Uh, we can use God for our, you know, and so the vertical relationship is destroyed. Uh, man becomes prideful. The horizontal relationship is destroyed. Man becomes self-centered. Immediately, uh, Adam, who, who, whose breath was taken away the first time he saw Eve, he goes, oh, wow, looks, and he goes, God, it was her. It was the woman you gave me. Not only does he blame her, he also blames God. Uh, you know, why are you in sin, Adam? Because of the woman, her fault, you gave me. If you didn't give me her, I'd be fine. Um, and so the blame game starts. Um, horizontal relationship destroyed. Everyone's looking out for themselves, not only in marriage, but in life in general. And you, you experience it in fear of man uh, all the time. Other things as well. But how often are we looking for others' approval? How, how scared are we of being disapproved? Uh, it may not be everyone, but it will always be someone, Right. And then environmental relationship, we use and abuse. Uh, rather than um, caretaking and creating life, we use and abuse and we become fruitless. Uh, so this is what it looks like. We've gone in the opposite direction. God is beneath us. Others are behind us. And we don't have a place from which to be fruitful and multiply. Life's going in the wrong direction. I hope you can see that. Wars and rumors of wars and suffering and pain, that's not the right direction. Um, and that's what we, ha we have done in sin. Okay, here's a super 
looks a lot, but it's not. It's, it's super easy. Uh, we're going to uh, understand it. At first, here's creation. God put man in a place, the garden. He put him in a vertical relationship with God, and he gave him a horizontal relationship, the spouse, so the family. That was it, be fruitful and multiply. We're going to fill the earth through families, societies, and, and family remains the foundation of a healthy society. You can't have a healthy society without families. You can't have families without marriages. It remains the same, but, it, it, but we're going to move on. The fall happens, so we sin. We put God beneath us. We put people behind us. Sin comes into our hearts. We're self-centered, and suddenly uh, we're in a new time in history, and so God uh, sustains a people for himself, and so the place isn't, is no longer the garden. The place is this promised land. They want to get to this promised land, this place where they can be God's people and life's going to be good. Uh, the vertical relationship is in the temple, not even the whole temple, just this one room in the temple, the Holy of Holies. And they can, only one person can go in there once a year. And if they have sins, they drop dead. And so they have uh, bells on their heels and tied to, by, uh, their, their legs are tied by a rope so that if they go into God's presence and they fall over dead because of their sins, someone can drag them out. Because if they didn't tie a rope, someone else has to go in, but they're not qualified for that. So then they drop dead and you understand the cycle. They're like lemmings just dropping over the, so, that, so they pull the, pull the high priest out by the rope. So can you imagine being the high priest once a year going into the Holy of Holies to go and, and represent kind of the, uh, the, the sins of, to be forgiven, uh, for God to forgive people, you go to his seat of mercy, and, and there's this like, is it a joy? Or is he just thinking about every single thing God might be counting against him? All right? You understand? It's fear. It's not a great thing. Um, and so it's the nation. It's no longer the family for the, for the Jews. It's the nation, it's Israel, it's the people, it's being part of Israel is the big deal. Um, and so everything changes with Jesus. This is a time of promise, a time of looking forward, but then Christ comes. Yes, Jordan, I'm so glad you did that. A big hoo-hoo. And Jesus comes, the promised Messiah, and we enter into a new time in history, a redemptive age, which we're in now. And our place is no longer Perth or uh, your nation that you were born in or whatever your passport is. Our place is an inheritance in a new heaven and a new earth. It's a hope. It's still coming. We can't move into it fully yet, but it's beginning to move into us like this. If I showed you this last week. If, you were, if, if let's say you had a trust fund of billions of dollars, how would that change your life? You don't have it yet. It's just sitting in a trust fund. But you would take work differently. You would take life struggles differently, financial struggles differently, because of what you know is coming. You know, it would begin to move into you, even though you can't reach into it yet. And so we have this inheritance, and it's beginning to bring us joy and peace right now. Anxieties and fears are being washed away because of what we already have, even though we can't yet fully move into it right now. And that's the place. So Perth isn't our place. King's Cross isn't our place. My job isn't my place. My, my marriage to my wonderful wife isn't my ultimate place. Nothing is going to satisfy me. The only thing that's going to satisfy me is being in God's presence one day, but I'm not there yet. And then uh, the vertical relationship, we have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. 
It's, it's back. It's not a temple. It's not a fearful place. You don't drop dead. You don't get pulled out of your quiet time by a rope. You don't go into your study in the morning and say, kids, family, I've loved you. I've written the will. If I'm going into God's presence now to go read my Bible and pray, uh, if I don't come out, just grab this rope and tug on it. We don't do that. We run into God's presence. As Josh said this morning, he, reading the text, God invites us. Come, my children, come in. Yeah, but you don't know what, what I'm like. You don't know about my warts. I do. I know it all. Come. We run into God's presence with fullness of joy through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he puts us into a, 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 a relationship with one another, into a visible church. He doesn't put us into a new nation. There's no ism within the, the church. We don't think we're better than any nation. We don't think we're better than any people. In fact, the people who know that they're the worst than they think in the world are Christians. If there's any people group who should be humble, it should be the visible church all over the world because we know that we've been forgiven by the grace of God alone. Someone had to die to save us, right? So it's not a nation, it's not a marriage, it's, not a, it's a people, it's a group of people gathering. And so this church, King's Cross, the church down the road, uh, the church you don't like, if it's, a, if it's a church that Jesus is building, it's part of his bride, it's very lovely, it's very wonderful, even if it's not your taste. And then an age that's coming is the consummation when Jesus ushers in the new heaven, the new earth, not only is it moving into us, suddenly we move into it. Malcolm and Lizzie are moving soon. You should ask them when they're moving and see if you can help them out. Um, they'll try to give you stuff. Don't take it. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> uh, they would love some books. If you have any free, just pass them on. Um, consummation, new heaven and new earth. They're moving soon. They're going to leave some stuff behind, and they're going to move into a new house. And they're going to still be the same couple, same marriage, same family. They're still going to eat food. They're still going to go to bed. They're still going to, but everything's going to be different. Everything's going to be new. And in the same way, but a much greater way, we're all going to move in. We're going to leave some things behind, the pain and sorrows. It's going to be redemption of things, pains, hurts. And we're going to enter into a new. We're still going to be us. Still going to recognize yourself. Still going to remember things. But everything's going to be new. And then the horizontal is a kingdom, not a church. So when we're in the new heaven and the new earth, it's not going to be, are you Baptist? Are you Anglican? Are you Catholic? Are you charismatic? Are you a Pente? Are you independent? Is your church big, small? It's just the people of God all together in his kingdom. And so Paul talks about this. He says, we've started to pray for you ever since we heard about your faith in Jesus your love for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Because that you have moved from being Colossians to being Christians, ever since that hope was laid up in your hearts, there's a faith in Jesus that's growing and a love for one another that's coming out of you. And we love that and we pray for you. And the gospel, he says, the gospel is bearing fruit in you and it's increasing. In other words, if people watch your lives, they see that there's something different about you. What's changed? Uh, we were at a house cooling party. Uh, Malcolm and Lizzie were leaving a house, and, and so they house cooling party last night. And, and I was speaking to someone that's known them for about 18 years, I believe. And they were talking about, about Malcolm. And I said to them, 
You know, Malcolm talks about himself in a way that I, I, I've, I have never met the man that he speaks about. He's, he's a kind man. He loves people. He gives up a lot of his time. He's full of wisdom. He loves the church. He loves Jesus. He's gracious, humble, changing. That's the only Malcolm I know. But he talks about someone who's so unlike that. And the lady said, I, I, exactly, me neither. That's what people say. That's what Paul said. People are going to look at you and they're going to say, something's different about you. Something's changing. What is, you, you used to be so ungracious, but you're quite a gracious person. You used, to be, you used to be impatient. You used to think you were the bee's knees. To my embarrassment, I got in touch with a friend from about 20 years ago uh, recently and uh, just said good day and we, we, we kind of send messages to and fro, probably, probably for about five minutes, probably about three messages, four messages. That was enough for him to say this. Wow, Mark, you've really changed. You used to be a huge douchebag. <laughs> wow. I mean, it was kind of obvious, but it was, I was also kind of, I was kind of hurt and I was kind of grateful. And in 20 years' time, we we're all going to be able to say that about each other again. Because Jesus is changing us. We're becoming like Him. Who you are today is the worst version of yourself that you're ever going to be again if you're walking with Jesus. <laughs> Why? Because He's making you more, God's making us more like Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Um, not all at the same pace. Some of us are more resistant than others. Um, but that's what He's doing. Okay, so you get the picture uh, you understand that, and Paul says, so, you know, faith, love, hope for the saints, and, and then basically he goes, so you're on a new plane. That's gone. That's finished. The white block is over. It's not yours anymore. When you met Jesus, he started you where you began with God in the garden, and he put you in right relationship with all the saints. The love is growing in your hearts. Faith is growing in Jesus, and a new hope is springing up in you all the time. And so that's where you can't ever go further back than that red dot. Even if you put yourself back, that's still not where you are. You know, so even if I pretend to be a single guy, I'm not a single guy. Something changed on the 9th of October, 2004. Impressive, right? I got it. (laughs) Something changed. Something changed when Jesus found you and the Holy Spirit gave you faith to believe in Him and you confessed your sins and put your faith into Jesus Christ. Something changed forever. And so Paul says, okay, this is what I'm praying for. Colossians 1 verse 9. Are we good? Okay. Paul says, and so, and so, because of all that, from that day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, he's going to tell us what he prays, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing, there's that language again, bearing fruits in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might 
all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul says to the the Colossians must walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. They must endure, they must be patient and joyful, they must give thanks. That's quite a lot. But there's at least four things Paul says the Colossians need for for this to happen. And two of them have already happened. Four things they need, two of them have already happened. Um, And we're just going to look at those quickly this morning. Uh, Thank you to my tissue sponsors. You know who you are. Excuse me for a minute. Trust me, that's better for all of us. Okay, number one, Paul says that we need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. He prays that we might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Here's the thing, straight away, here's the thing. Paul says, we pray for you continually. Paul probably prayed three times a day, uh, morning, noon, and night. He came out of a Jewish tradition, and he probably kept that when he became a Christian. So he probably prayed early in the morning, noon, day, and nighttime. So there's at least three opportunities to pray for the Colossian Christians. And he says that we pray for you continuously. It probably means quite often in their prayers, they mention the saints that they know of, the Philippians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians, the Corinthians, the Romans, and they they pray. So it's, it's quite legitimate, but it's not praying without ceasing. But the fact that they continue to pray tells us something. What does it tell us? It tells us that this is a journey. You're not a robot that turns on and off. You're not a saved by Jesus Christ. Now you're completely different. You know, became a Christian, ungracious person, and, and let's say I'm, I'm married, and my wife comes to me and goes, I thought you loved Jesus. What is she saying? Why haven't you changed completely? Well, because it's a journey, right? So just get that, first of all, because why? Because we're always inclined to be quite harsh, if not to ourselves, to others, to be quite impatient. That's why we have to learn to bear fruit of patience, to be quite unloving. Do you know what I mean? Quite judgmental. We're on a journey. And Paul knows that they're on a journey. And the greatest apostle, who's sitting in prison for their sake, is saying, it's okay, you've got time. We're going to be praying for you along this journey. It's a forward-moving journey, not a backward-moving journey, but it's a journey nevertheless, okay? Um, But Paul says that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Um, And this means that the the Holy Spirit is going to give them wisdom and understanding. This is what Paul says. um, Let me just get through these two quickly. Let me go back to the one. At the bottom, right at the bottom, I forget where I, uh, I got this picture from someone else I remember later. Uh, data is at the bottom. That's kind of just raw material, numbers, facts. We have this data. We put the data together to gather some information. What does the data mean? And it informs us about something. Uh, but that's still not life transforming just yet. It doesn't change anything yet. At this stage, you just know stats and you've just read a George Barna book. Then we have knowledge. 
Uh, and that's what we use this, inf- what does this information mean to us? What can we know because of this information that we've gathered from all the data? What is true? What's not true? What do we believe? But this still doesn't change anyone. For, for with knowledge, you need to have wisdom. Wisdom is how do I use this knowledge? What do I do with it? And Paul says, we pray that you may know the will of God and that he will give you the, the, the Holy Spirit, that you'll have all spiritual. The Holy Spirit will give you wisdom and understanding what to do. In other words, Paul fully expects that they're going to know what God desires for their lives and that the Holy Spirit's going to show them how every day, every week, every month to live for God uh, in their situation, in their season, uh, as things go, come about. He's not so much meaning specifically, and this is where we get caught, because we've grown up in an individualistic society. Individualistic society, you know, you are a snowflake, uh, live your best life, um, you can do anything you want to do. You know, you're an individual, you're, you're wonderful, you're, uh, you're, you're so different. That's how we come to God. And we go, so we hear, oh, God has a will for my life. Okay, uh, Jeremiah, you know, before I knew you in your mother's womb, I've I, 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 I've predestined you. Um, okay, I know that you know the plans you have for me. What are they? What are they? Are they, are they? are they better than someone else's plans? Are they nice? That's, the, that's not how Paul's thinking about this. And it's probably the wrong way. And most of us, if we were admit, and we put up our hand, who knows the will of God for your life? Throw up your hand. You're fully confident that you know the will of God for your life specifically. Not many hands will go up. Because that's not really how God speaks to us. God shows us the, His will for our lives. He shows us how He wants us to live. We are part of His bride. We are part of Jesus' body. I don't, you know, it's like this. What is Mark's will for his finger? What is Mark's will for his kneecap? What is Mark's will for his shoulder? Or, what is Mark's will for his being? And Paul's looking at, I want you to know the will of God. Because when you know what the will of God is for us, you, you can find wisdom and understanding to figure out how to live in light of that. You bring yourself into the submission of what God's will is for the planet, for his people, for the lost. And that's why you need wisdom and understanding. Why? Because every day you're going to have to submit your life to the will of God. Right? The other way around, we never have to submit. We just have to live our best life ever. I mean, we're really hoping God goes, I want you to be super successful and mega wealthy so that you can sow sow money into missions. Yes. All right. So that means that I can spend 12 hours at work every day, which I love. I'd rather do that than be at home raising the children. And uh, you, you get... But it's way more boring when God goes, I want you to, to walk in love with the body. I want you to use your gifts to edify them. I want you to open up your schedule and your front door and your hearts and your wallet and your, every, to them. But God, what about, what, 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 what about my vacation? What about my, my, what about my this? Well, that's where you need spiritual wisdom and understanding to know when to lean in and submit yourself, and to know when to rest, and to know when to work. Does that make sense? And so Paul teaches us that the Spirit is going to give us wisdom and understanding. 
The intention, Paul says, is that we live lives worthy of the calling. Worthy of God. Paul's saying, one, God is worthy of your life. He's worth it. You go, how many of my preferences do I have to lay down? Paul's one of those great question answers. He never answers the question. He just poses it back with a question. You know, how much of my life do I really have to lay down? And Paul goes, well, how worthy is God? And in a real way, Paul's kind of saying, you know, don't answer it with your head. Answer it with your life. Well, God's worthy of all of it. Well, no, no, no. Don't say it. Just let's talk more show. Just do it. Don't say it. Just do it. How much do you love uh, your brother or sister? Oh, with all of my heart. Just lo- don't say it. Just go love your brother and sister. The second thing Paul's saying is that God has emotions, fully pleasing to him. God has feelings. This is super exciting. Not for some, I guess. Who r- we run away from emotions. I get that. I, I do that regularly. But isn't it nice to know that God has feelings? He has emotions. And you say, well, I've never really experienced God. I've never really experienced God's presence or God, you know. Okay, that, can we put that to aside for a moment? You will one day. That's real for some people. That's genuine. But God has experienced you. There's not a There's not a believer in the world that God turns to the Trinity and says, I've never really experienced Nasia or Jeannie or Malcolm or Dan. I've never really had a feeling about their life. I feel kind of semi-detached. I kind of wonder if they really have faith in Jesus because it's just... God is fully engaged with your life. Babies don't really have a lot of feelings about their parents. I don't think. I don't remember what it was like. And I certainly didn't feel that, like my kids were sensitive to us. I mean, if they did, they wouldn't poop in their pants and then cry at 2 o'clock in the morning to wake us up, to change them, to feed them. To I mean, that's just completely insensitive. But we always had feelings for them, except for the first hour of Ezekiel's life. It's the only child I, I didn't love for about an hour in my family. Sorry, there's probably lots of children I don't love that much. But Ezekiel came out and he hurt my wife badly. He came out with a broken collarbone and a head that looked like a footy and almost dead, green and blue. It, it was a horrific experience. And all I wanted to do was protect the one human I did know. I knew her. I didn't know him. I loved her. I didn't felt indifferent about him. Take him away. Go. Keep him alive. Do. Came to Nats, and eventually they brought him and put him under a warm light. He was fine. They got stuff out of his throat, and he started crying. And I'm there with my wife, feeling something for her. She looks at me in her pain from her bed. Mark, please go and be with him. But I want to be with you. I'll be okay. Please go be with him. So I turn around, see this mangly little naked wrestling 
footy-headed thing. And the nurse says, do you want to hold him? I say, no, thanks. And she picks him up and puts him in my arms. And then it's like something opened up from heaven. And love rushed into my body. I've never stopped feeling something for him. When he makes bad mistakes, it hurts. When he has victories, I probably feel more happy for him than he feels about himself. There's always a feeling. God always has a feeling about your life, about your day, about your decisions, about your coming in and your going out. And Paul's not threatening. Paul's saying, live a life fully pleasing to him. God is predisposed to being pleased by you. You have been made to please God. He's the parent, the father that looks down and goes, oh, I love that kid. And then we want to go, no, well, let me tell you about your kid. Let me tell you about your, the shortcomings. And, the, and he's the parent that kind of is like, I know, I know. We will get there. We'll get there. Look at this kid. And Paul says, anyway, Paul says, you, you need knowledge of God. What, what is his will? What is he like? What does he love? What does he want? And we get that through his word, through community, through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to have to give you wisdom and understanding so you can make good decisions because we're predisposed to making bad ones. You've been raised to believe that you're an individual, to just live for yourself and do your own thing. And then Jesus ruins your whole life and says, no, now, now you belong to me. And then... Um, then in doing that, in kind of laying our lives down to submit to the wisdom and understanding we get from the Holy Spirit, we find out that God is pleased and God is getting glory. And when people say, hey, there's something different about you, what they're really seeing is the glory of God working through your heart, your life, your being. Let's move along quickly. Second thing Paul says is that I want you to, we pray that you would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. The intention is that you would be able to endure and have patience. So we're going to need endurance and patience. It's not going to be an easy road. It's, but, but what Paul's praying is, I pray that you would be strengthened with all his might. You see, you see what Paul's not saying? Paul's not saying, hasn't Jesus done enough for you? What more does he need to do to get you off your bum to just put in a bit of effort? Paul goes, no. He's not finished with you. He's saved you. He's rescued you. He's redeemed you. But he still needs to empower you. You still need his might. His glorious, majestic might. So that you can endure. So what does that mean? It means on the tough days when we don't want to endure, we can stop and pray for his glorious might. It means when our brother or sister is struggling with temptation or trial, we don't go, don't you remember what Jesus did for you? What's wrong with you? Are you a real Christian anyway? No, we dive in and we say, I'll be praying for you. God wants to empower you with his glorious might. Do not try by yourself. Stop. Stop whatever you are doing. You will not succeed. Wait. <laughs> Stop trying. Do not succeed. Always give up and let him strengthen you with his glorious might so that you might endure with all patience. Right? 
Those are two things we need. We need knowledge of His will and we need might. The other two things we already have. And this is what Paul says. He says, With joy, give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. This is done. This is past tense. This has happened. You might need knowledge of His will, and you might need wisdom and understanding, you and I. And you, you and I might need um, to be strengthened so that we can endure and be patient. But what has already happened is that He, the Father, has qualified us to yeah, share in the inheritance of all the saints. Hap- this has happened. And there are two uh, obstacles to being qualified. The one is, to be qualified, the one is unqualified. That we're unqualified. We're not good enough. And that's how we think about it most of the time. That, that we're not good enough. You know, are you a great Christian? No, I'm not, I'm, not, no I'm, not, I'm not a great Christian. Not yet. I'm going to be a great Christian. What we're saying is, I'm not qualified to call myself a great Christian yet. When I'm good enough, then I'll be a great Christian. Uh, what, what does it take to be a great Christian? Faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all. If you're still trying in your own effort, you're right. You're not a great Christian. If you have given up your own efforts and your faith is in Jesus alone, then you are a great Christian. Are you a great Christian, the guy who got saved yesterday? Yeah, because I just believe in Jesus and I believe he's enough. And he's going to show me how you're a great Christian. Well done. You're not a mature one yet, but you're a great one. So, you know, uh, unqualified, we're not good enough. But this isn't really what Paul's talking about. Um, Paul, if, if he's talking about qualification, Paul is the man. This is what he says to, uh, I think it's the Corinthians. But, but he says to them, look, I'm going to speak foolishly because you, you think people are, you think your efforts are important. You think who you are is important. So I'm just going to show you how dumb that is by boasting myself, by doing what you do. And I'm going to show you that I'm better than all of you, but it's just foolishness. And he warns them. He warns them. He doesn't like doing this. And then he writes, he goes, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So I'm already in the circumcision party. That's the the original. The eighth day is the original. That's as good a circumcision as you can get. You Corinthians are getting circumcised as adults. I was circumcised on the eighth day. My circumcision was better than yours. Of the people of Israel. You're not of the people of Israel, but I am. I'm a better person. I'm from a better nation. Of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was the best of the best. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. The Pharisees kept the law religiously. Paul says, I kept the law, the dot, the tick, the iota. I kept it perfectly. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Not only did I keep the law uh, in myself, but I was a, 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 I moved the, our religion forward. I stood against those who came against it. I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. If Paul is even sniffing at saying, we have to qualify ourselves, then Paul is asking us to go back to that. And Paul says that is the most foolish thing in the world. So he's not talking about qualifying ourselves in this way. The other way is not being unqualified. The other way is being disqualified. We have fallen. We have fallen out of the race. We can no longer win the prize. And this is what Paul says about us. He says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We have all been disqualified by the sin in our own lives. So, uh, you know, don't, we are unqualified and we're disqualified. 
And this is why he can say, but thanks be to the Father. The Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. The Father has qualified. Do you have to be good enough? No, you aren't good enough. I'm not good enough. You can go home and tell your parents, your pastor said, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. Are you disqualified? Everyone's a winner? Well, it may be that in Australian junior sports, everyone wins and you get a participation award. And maybe to appease you, one day God in heaven will give everyone a participation award. But actually, there, it's, a, it's a lose-lose or a win-win. He either qualifies us or we're not. You can be dis- we're, we're born disqualified for all have sinned. We've fallen short of God's holy standard. But the Father has qualified us. And secondly, Paul says in verse 13 to 14, he says, the other thing he's done is he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul goes, You've been transferred from the domain of darkness. This is where you lived. This is where you you were born into. The domain of darkness means you were under the authority of Satan. Your life was under the ownership, the lordship of Satan. You were in the domain of darkness. It doesn't matter how good anyone's life looks. It doesn't matter how healthy, wealthy, well they're going. Uh, It's all happening within this domain of darkness. And Paul says God reaches into that and he has saved you. He has rescued you. He has redeemed you from the domain of darkness. He has brought you out of that and put you into the kingdom of light. You have been taken from one authority. There was, why could we not uh, make ourselves righteous? Why could we not be good enough? Because we are under the authority of, of, of darkness. Of, you know, sin was, we were always prone to that. But Paul says you have been released from that authority. You have been brought into freedom and placed into the kingdom of light. You now, through Jesus Christ, are free. Jesus says Satan comes to rob, kill, and destroy. This is what happens. Satan comes to rob, kill, and destroy. But God comes that we might have life and life abundantly in Jesus Christ. He says that he has redeemed us. Redemption means that he's bought us with a price. Everyone in in Colossa would have understood this. They would have pictured, they would have seen it, that there's some slaves owned by someone. And Paul's saying, we are slaves to our sin. We're slaves under the authority of Satan. We're slaves and, 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 and Jesus steps in and he redeems us. He buys us. He pays for us. And the only way to redeem a slave is to pay uh, whatever value is attributed to that slave, and then you can take them as your ownership, and they now become yours. And so Jesus stepped into creation, redeemed us with his life, with his death. We are bought with the price of Christ's life. Why? I know you know this. Why am I stating it so kind of dramatically, intentionally? You're, you, 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 someone says, oh, I get this, I know this. Why are we back there? Because if you, we can understand what we were redeemed from, then we can understand what we are redeemed to. 
If you understand how much of a slave you were, then you'll understand how much of a freed person you are. If you never really thought you were a slave, then you won't really understand how free you are. There's a, a lot of people who still feel like they're free, but living in a domain of darkness. C.S. Lewis was brilliant at kind of talking about how the kingdom of darkness works. And the best way to do it is not to let anyone know that's where they are. He's bought us with a price, and He has forgiven us. We sang that song this morning, and it's exactly right. There's a beautiful chorus. You have forgiven, and you have forgotten my sins. I will never forget what you have done. You have forgiven, you have forgotten, and I will never forget what you have done. It's, in, it's an incredible exchange. God commits to never remember our sins because of Christ's de- life, death, and resurrection and merely asks that we will never forget what He has done. Why? How? How is this possible? And I close with this. Love. How can God send, it says the forgiveness through His beloved Son, How can God send His beloved Son to die a torturous death in our place and then raise Him? How can that be possible? Because it's not only the Father that loves us, but Jesus, the Son, and the Spirit. And together in in love, committed to this plan we call the gospel, each one participating, Christ in love goes to the cross so that God the Father can forget our sins, remember them no more, so that we, the freed, living in the kingdom of life, redeemed, can pray for the Holy Spirit to give us knowledge of God's will, that we might live to please Him, that we might have strength through the Holy Spirit, we might have God's strength, to endure trials and temptations, and we might have patience when we're tested. I wonder if you'd close your eyes just for a minute. I wonder if you can try and picture yourself like a plant and a gardener comes takes a plant from one part of the soil, takes it out, puts it in another. How could that plant ever get back to where it was? It can't. That's what God, if your faith is in Jesus, that's what God's done with you. He's taken you, rescued you from... And placed you in something new. How can you ever get back into it? You can't. You can't. But being where you are through faith in Jesus. Being in the kingdom of light. Are you praying that you might know God? And are you leaning into his strength?
Or are you tugging along in your own effort? Trying your best. I know it sounds noble, but it's fruitless. Of course we want to impress God. Just like a child wants to impress the Father. Of course we want to sacrifice and suffer for His sake. Of course we do. But it's not noble. And it's not fruitful. God says, I will give you wisdom and understanding. I will give you my strength.